Welcome to Mighty Parenting, a podcast with real, raw, and relevant talk about raising teens and parenting young adults. Welcome to Mighty Parenting, a community where we help you raise teens and parent 20-somethings so they can become happy, successful, and emotionally healthy adults. I'm Sandy Fowler, stress relief coach, speaker, and host of the Mighty Parenting Podcast. I have a quick reminder to pop over to MightyParenting.com where you can grab the free email series, How to Talk to Your Teen. And I'm getting great feedback from parents on that. So I'd love to hear what you think, how it's going for you, or if you have questions about it. And also it's hard sometimes to talk to our teens well when we're stressed. So I also have a free lesson for you with two stress relief strategies that take zero time. They do not require you to add things into your day. And you can get that at sandyfowler.com forward slash no time. We all want our kids to have good lives. We want them to have meaningful work, fun activities, good friends, solid family support. But when our kids have a difference, a disability, things change, and we may find ourselves fighting just for our kids to be included. Genia Steven has lived this. She has a younger sister and a son, both with disabilities and medical complexities, which led her to a lifetime of training in the disability field. Today, she is talking to us about a positive vision for kids with disabilities and also about inclusion in education at home and in our communities. Genia, welcome to Mighty Parenting. Thank you so much, Sandy. I'm really, really excited to be here. I am excited about this conversation too. I have I have a real heart for creating inclusive atmospheres. I've seen what a difference it makes uh, when our girls were growing up. There were a number of different circumstances. One in particular was our neighbors across the street had an adult son who was on the autism spectrum. He was nonverbal. And being a, a part of their friendship circle and for my kids to spend time with Mark made such a huge difference in the people they became. And we all, their family, our family, we all gained so much from the friendship and from being inclusive, not only us being inclusive of their differences, but every family has differences of Mm -hmm. some kind or another. So them being so in tune to being inclusive and accepting other people's differences and things also made a wonderful welcoming space for us. So I'm really excited to be talking to you about this today. And I'd like to start going back to your years growing up. So you have a sister with a disability. Could you tell us a little bit about her and her disability and your family life? Sure. So um, my sister is three and a half years younger than I am. So we're both in our forties now. And when we were growing up, when we were, you know, really young, we were just uh, growing up during the time when people were with disabilities were just starting to be included into uh, regular community schools. And so it was quite a struggle for my parents. Originally, when my sister started school, there were no options in our town 
for uh, general education for kids with disabilities. There were only segregated marginalized course, uh, classes for kids. So my parents actually bought a small plot of empty land in a community about 45 minutes away so that they could pay um, school taxes in a different region so that she could go to a school that um, at least had some opportunity for her to be included in general education. And then as the years passed, things improved in our local community, and she was able to uh, go to the same elementary school as I did. But really, those, I was going to say those early years, although it's never, you know, we're still, we're still advocating for, for support and inclusion. But during those early years, it was a real struggle just to get in the door for my sister. In, in education. Um, and as the years passed, that got a, a little bit easier. Um, and it turned not so much into, you know, getting access, getting in the door, but then what happened once she was in the door and whether uh, the school and the classes were truly inclusive or whether she was essentially like a, a visitor in a foreign land, you know, where she was there physically, but not truly included in what was going on. And I think that that's still a really common experience for many students with disabilities, that they may be physically present or they may still be in segregated, self-contained classrooms held away from their their peers in the rest of the school. Um, sometimes they're in a separate school altogether. But even when kids are in general education, often inclusion is still something that we're aspiring to, but not truly experiencing. If someone tells you that including kids with disabilities in with the education of the mainstream students holds back the mainstream students or stops them from getting the attention and the education they need to get. What do you say to that? Yeah, two, there are lots of things that can be said to that, but two thoughts come to mind. First, the research just doesn't support that statement. So there's been lots and lots of research over the last few decades about inclusive environments, inclusive school environments. And what the research shows is that all students benefit from being educated together, both academically and socially. So that's one thing. And the other thing that um, is true is that when classrooms and teaching styles are adapted to be inclusive of students with disabilities, everyone benefits because we know that differentiated instruction, um, we know that flexible teaching environments, um, multimodal teaching, that that doesn't just help the academic success of students with disabilities, but it helps students throughout the class. So, um, it, you know, it's kind of one of those arguments that is based on a discriminatory idea that students with disabilities are a liability, um, that their deficits are going to, you know, suck all resources and energy like a black hole. And um, I, you know, but it doesn't really bear out in reality. I'm thinking about a classroom where things are flexible and how many other people would benefit from that. How many of our kids who have ADHD or are on the spectrum 
and in a traditional classroom. Kids who have sensitivities, noise, sound sensitivities, um, just so many things that children in a mainstream classroom who do not have an IEP or any kind of identified in the school system, yep. learning disability would benefit so much from having those things. And what do you see about the kids who are high performing? How does how do these different teaching modalities, how does it benefit them having kids with all different personalities, learning styles, abilities, all mm -hmm. those differences? How does it benefit the traditional high performing student? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, they're learning to function in the real world with the full diversity of our communities. And so that's going to make them a much higher performing adult than, um, than if they are in a sort of narrow field of, of other citizens, right? Because once they're out in the world, there's, it's not a narrow field of, um, of a particular type of human. They need to be able to function effectively uh, with all of humanity. So that's one aspect of it. The other thing is that when we're talking about you know, flexible classrooms and differentiated instruction and multimodal instruction and those kinds of things. We're not talking about catering to just kids who are struggling in some way. What we're talking about is really good pedagogy. So when you look at the research around teaching, uh, you know, in the same way that, you know, when I was in school, when I, when I was in elementary school, there were enrichment classes. I don't know if that's something that is was a, a thing in your neck of the woods or when you were a child, but it, you know, the kids who were, as you're saying, identified as being particularly high functioning would go and they would have enrichment classes. Well, what would those enrichment classes be? They would be the kind of classroom I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, they would have opportunities for hands-on learning uh, in the sciences and, um, you know, uh, um, and there's a word that is escaping my mind right now. Um, oh, that's so frustrating. Anyway, they would have opportunities basically to, to really explore a variety of different subjects in a variety of different ways. And this was considered to be a way of advancing their academics and their, their development. And that was because it was in contrast to the way that the majority of teaching was happening at the time, which was, you know, you sat at your desk, you had worksheets, you know, you, um, everything was very uh, route. So really when we're talking about classrooms that are inclusive of kids with disabilities, what we're talking about is just really good pedagogy, not, not catering to a particular segment of students. I love that idea. And so many of us are saying, hey, it's time to take another look at how we're running our schools, how our classrooms Absolutely. are functioning. And everything you're saying says that the research shows us that this is just a good way to run a classroom. Yeah. And now, in addition to that, we can expand our education to include human formation, more human formation around learning to handle 
as you said, the full spectrum of our our world of all the different kinds of people our kids are going to have to interact with when they get out and they are working in the real world. Yeah. Yeah. And the same principles, the same principles of anti-discrimination and inclusion, excuse me, of students with disabilities applies when we're taking an anti-racism lens, for example, within our classrooms or a culturally competent um, perspective on, um, on teaching in classrooms. So, Really, this is not different. I think what's often different is that people haven't had the opportunity, adults haven't had the opportunity to think about students with disabilities as being one part of the natural spectrum of um, human manifestation and two, that their exclusion is 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 discriminatory and that there's nothing really inherently valuable about the way historically we have separated students. It's it's not like somebody did some studies and said, oh, actually, this is the way that is going to serve people best. That's not what happened. Um, what happened was that uh, in, in the U.S. and in Canada, um, prior to the 19... Um, 50s and 60s, there were no requirements for the government to educate children with disabilities, with significant disabilities, because they weren't considered to be to be worth the investment of uh, public funds. And parents advocated for change around that and parents wanted and needed educational opportunities for their kids. And in the absence of uh, government funding being willing to, or governments being willing to fund the education of students with disabilities, parents started their own, you know, little mini education programs, often in basement churches or in people's homes. And they did that not because that was the best way to educate students with disabilities, but because that was the only choice they had, because they there, there was not the, the public support. And then as governments in in North America said, okay, yes, we have an obligation to educate all students, they just perpetuated this segregated model of education. But it's never been shown in, in, and in fact, it's never been shown to work well. And in fact, it's been shown that it doesn't work particularly well, that it works much better for all students when they're educated together. When it comes to home, we've talked about school so mm-hmm. far, but you also advocate for home lives that are inclusive. What does that mean when you're talking about a, a child who has a disability? What does it mean in that child's home? Let's talk about that first. What does that look like? Well, I think it means typical expectations of, you know, the role of son or daughter or brother or sister or cousin or niece or nephew or grandchild. Um, So it means that the natural interactions of the family, the way kids are expected to be contributing members of their families, that 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 is in place for kids with disabilities as well, Um, that that kids with disabilities aren't left out of those typical expectations. So I think typical expectations is a quick way of saying that. And then that extends to community as well. You know, that all of the typical kinds of social roles that our kids have at, you know, different ages, when we're talking about teenagers and young adults, we'd be talking about part-time employment, for example, 
maybe volunteer work, um, more and more taking on responsibilities at home, uh, exploring their interests and passions, um, you know, becoming team members and club members and um, artists and dancers and musicians and all of the things that we expect of, of youth as they're blooming towards adulthood for lack of a better way of saying it. Is that something that you find parents don't do with their kids who have disabilities that they, that they don't have expectations around this or that they lower them too much? Well, I think that, that parents are indoctrinated into a medical model of disability and the medical model of disability says that, you know, the disability is, um, the impairment is bad, that it requires fixing, that the way that the pathway to a good life is therapy and intervention to mitigate the disability. Um, and that this is the problems faced by people with disabilities uh, is inherent in the person, you know, it's inherent in the disability itself. And so oftentimes I just finished I've just submitted um, recently my master's of science dissertation to the University of Oxford on this. And we, I looked at the messages that parents received in neonatal intensive care units about, about their babies with disabilities and how that impacts parents' perception of a positive and typical future for their children. And what I found is that even right from those early, early days that parents are told that their kids are severe, that they're abnormal. There's all kinds of really dehumanizing language that's learned or that's used about them. And parents typically go on, you know, there's a diagnostic process that happens at some point. That's all very medical model. Parents get lists of complications um, and limitations. Um, often the first thing they do is Google, um, you know, Google the diagnosis and that's what they get is a list of complications and limitations and a list of um, disability diagnosis specific Facebook groups, some of which are great, but many of which are really kind of toxic and negative. And then you get into the school system and the school system is school systems are still largely um, discriminatory and segregate and marginalize students with disabilities. And we talk about, you know, I've never, there are a couple of exceptions where improvement is still possible, but generally the IEP process is incredibly deficit focused and talks a lot about what kids can't do. Uh, so kids go through the education system with people, you know, always talking about the deficits. And so, you know, if parents don't have an opportunity to take a step back and think about alternative big ideas around how they can perceive, understand um, disability and support their kids with disabilities, then yes, they will have uh, un unreasonably low expectations of their kids and also of what's possible for their kids. So, you know, some parents will benefit from well, some, all parents will benefit from this opportunity. Some parents have the opportunity to think about those big ideas, like the social model of disability, which says, yes, the impairment exists, but it's not the whole person. It doesn't define the whole person and impairment in the human condition is normal. And that the biggest problems facing people with disabilities are actually 
external to them. It's things like our attitudes towards people with disabilities, structural and system, systems barriers to people with disabilities. And with that reframe, we can start to think about the potential, both of the individual with a disability, um, as far as what they can achieve personally, but we can also think about the possibility of a typical life when we start to remove barriers that are external to the person, um, like attitudinal barriers and structural and systemic barriers. I like your idea of parents needing space to take that step back. Mm-hmm for our parents who are listening, let's first talk about a parent who has a child who has whatever type of disability. They've, if they're listening to this podcast, they've been very likely living in a world where they're dealing with this medical model and all of these barriers you talked about for years. What advice or hope do you have to offer them? How can they, at this point, when they have a child who's older, already in school, been in school for years, mm-hmm. how can they take that step back and, and get that, that bigger picture view, that larger perspective for their child's whole life? Mm-hmm. So I run Good Things in Life, which offers a podcast and a membership for parents um, and a course on inclusive education. And that's exactly what we do is provide parents with the opportunity to hear alternative big ideas, positive, good ideas that can help them um, to leave behind the medical model of disability or at least put it in its place and to think uh, positively and differently about what's possible in the lives of their sons and daughters with disabilities. And I started Good Things in Life because, you know, because I had a sister with a disability and my mom had the great good fortune to connect with a really disability positive community of people when my sister was really young. I grew up at the feet of world thought leaders in the field of disability. And I grew up in a really disability positive community. And I had a community of people around me that could help me think about my own son and how to, how to support him to have a good life. And um, so when my son was born, I wasn't starting from the same place as so many parents are starting. You know, I already had relationships with people with disabilities. I'd already had time to unpack the problem of discrimination and devaluation of people with disabilities. And most importantly, I had these people around me who could, who could help me. And I'm also a a midwife in Ontario, Canada. And so over the more than a decade of my career, I've supported more than a thousand families. And, you know, several of them, of course, um, have had kids with disabilities and I'm still involved in the disability community. And I just became more and more saddened by the gulf between where I started my parenting, my parenting of my son and where most parents are still starting from, which is, you know, not having had the opportunity to go to school with kids with disabilities, not having any coworkers with disabilities or friends with disabilities, or the opportunity to think about disability prior to the birth or the diagnosis of their own kids. <clears throat> so I started Good Things in Life to close that gap 
to provide people with the opportunity to have access to the ideas and the conversations and the thought leaders who would be able to help them create a positive vision of um, a, life, a typical life for their sons and daughters with disabilities. And often people, when I say that, they think, um, parents think, oh, um, that doesn't apply to me because my son or daughter is essentially too disabled. You know, their, their, their impairments are significant. But I absolutely mean that possibility of a positive and typical life for people, regardless of how significant the disability is. Over the years, I've read stories or interacted with people who have had children or other people in their life who have, I'm going to say beaten the odds, but I don't mean that a disability went away. Mm-hmm. I just mean that largely due to the atmosphere they were in, they were able to have that good life that you're talking about. So what I hear you saying is one of the things parents can do and really need to do is, well, one, maybe seek out other people who have disabilities and befriend them, become part of, you know, let them become part of your world, create those bridges, hang out with people who have a positive view around disabilities, which I'll put a link to your podcast. And of course, your your work is always, you know, as a guest, your work is always linked in your bio on our website page on Mighty Parenting. So we'll have both of those on there, but also other people in your community. And when you're in conversation with other parents, it sounds like what we need to do is we also need to encourage that positive side. I know, Genia, when um, you and I were talking before the show today, we were talking about COVID and we found ourselves even sliding down that slippery slope and kind of had to pull ourselves back a second and go, hey, wait a minute, you know, let's let's not slide into the negative. We, we can face obstacles and challenges and let's face those with a positive spin. Let's let's just create a a good life and a good atmosphere for our whole family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, I don't want to suggest to people, to parents of kids with disabilities or people listening who, whose kids don't have disabilities that um, just a cheerful attitude is going to be enough. Um, I think that, you know, the, the reality is that people with disabilities face extreme discrimination and devaluation and a truncation of their opportunities in life. And that is very, very hard. (laughs) And um, it's, and sometimes the, whatever the impairment is itself presents particular challenges as well. It's a little bit like, you know, we don't, it would be inappropriate um, to say to a person of color that they just need to be cheerful about living with racism. Like that would be not, not, you know, not healthy or appropriate. Um, and it would deny their experience of challenge. What I, what I do think we need to do is, is recognize and perhaps unpack some of the assumptions we have about whether or not disability itself is a problem or whether it's a normal 
manifestation of human diversity that perhaps sometimes creates some challenges, but that mostly is um, most of the challenges that are created are created because of the way our society is structured and the way the mindsets of the people in our society are structured. And so we can work on that and being positive and proactive and um, optimistic about what is possible in the lives of people with disabilities and the whole community, like what's possible for the whole community when people with disabilities are welcomed and included um, and are making their contribution as a, as a citizen. Yeah. And so you mentioned there, you know, parents who don't have a child with a disability, what do we need mm -hmm. to know? What do we need to know about our role in other people's lives and in our communities? Mm -hmm. I think that, um, I think that it can be really hard to do, but I think examining our own assumptions about disability is one really, really important way in the, you know, again, using racism as a corollary, you know, as, as white people, like racism is our problem, you know, we need to fix it. And so in the same way, um, people who are not connected to people with disabilities who don't have any freely given relationships with people with disabilities. Um, it's, it's our responsibility to unpack how we're contributing to the problem. So that's one thing is just working on our own mindset. The other thing is if you think about um, a person with a disability or their, they and their family standing at one side um, of a, um, canyon or, you know, riverbank and you standing at the other side of the riverbank, oftentimes for people with disabilities and their families, it feels like they are always the one who's working really, really hard to build a bridge across the river to reach the people on the other side. And so one thing that people can do is think about where they can be building bridges that are reaching out from their side of the river. And so that might mean, um, you know, might mean considering if one's in a position to do so, hiring somebody with a disability um, in their place of work. It might mean, uh, and actively seeking out people with disabilities as employees. Um, it might mean paying attention to who the people with disabilities are in your community and making efforts to get to know them um, it might mean if somebody with a disability or their family or supporters do approach you, you know, perhaps you're a Cub Scout leader, for example, um, thinking about not, not just, oh, well, will I say, yes, this person with a disability can join Cub Scouts, but how can we adapt the way we do things at Cub Scouts in order to make it welcoming for everybody in, instead of expecting that the person with a disability is going to try and um, the, in, instead of expecting that it's the onus of responsibility is on the person with a disability to to be conforming and to um, take to be bearing all the weight of fitting in. Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And 
a thought that ran through my head while you were doing that is I was thinking about my community. I'm like, who do I know with a disability in my community? And we, it's easy to do a knee-jerk reaction and say, well, I don't know anybody. And what that really tells us is that we just need to start looking. Our brains have articular, re, uh, articular activation systems where it seeks out confirmation of what it already knows. So if we say, oh, I don't know anybody, there's nothing I can do, then our brain actually seeks out more information around that. But if we say, hmm, I want to... I want to find the people in my community with disabilities, our brain will just start seeking out information around that. So if your Mm -hmm. knee-jerk reaction is to say, I don't know anybody, give your brain some time, say, hmm, I'd like to find them. And I I I love, love yeah, well, and I love your idea there too, around just taking leadership. Common courtesy, common sense leadership is what I heard there. If I'm leading a children's group club organization, if I have somebody in my neighborhood, in my community, how can I be inviting? How can I be inclusive? And it might mean being uncomfortable and having some uncomfortable conversations. It it might mean saying, you know, I would like to host a, a little neighborhood get together and I, I don't know what I can do to make that easier for you to attend. Yeah. And let someone yeah. just tell you and educate you. Yeah. And, and I feel confident saying that almost universally, the response you'll get will be positive. If you say, what do you need in order for this to be easy for you? Um, how can, how can we support this to be successful? That, you know, it may feel awkward and uncomfortable to, to say that, to put yourself out there like that, but you will likely get a very positive and grateful response. Um, and, and by taking that proactive stance, you're also increasing the chances that whatever social interaction you're talking about will be successful, which then creates this positive feedback loop, right? So it's, it's worth it to, to be building that bridge out from your side and to, to be making that effort. And, People can also think about like, I don't know, Sandy, what are some of your, do you have any hobbies? Um, Yeah, I, well, I tend to like hiking, camping, reading. Um, Also, I like to do museums, art museums, natural history museums. So, you know, with any of those things, you could be with any of those activities, particularly if there are things that you do regularly. You know, like you, it's the kind of thing you do on a, every Saturday morning, you go for a hike or, you know, whatever the, the example is, mm-hmm. um, people can think about, you know, where in my community might there be people in uh, people with disabilities who are also interested in hiking, um, but who only ever get the chance to do that. If there's somebody paid to be with them that I could invite to hike. Oh, interesting. Okay. So that's like a whole new realm. And can you tell us kind of quickly, how are there particular organizations? Is there um, a keyword we can search on to find people or organizations, like maybe organizations who orchestrate that in our area? Yeah. So, I, I mean, there, there are organizations, there, there are going to be service organizations in every community. So it wouldn't be hard to, to Google your hometown 
disability support or something like that, and you'll probably find it. Um, there's also organizations. Uh, there's there's um there's an organization that has local chapters called Citizen Advocacy, and Citizen Advocacy matches people with disabilities with people without disabilities um, in freely given relationships. Um, and so you can also look up citizen advocacy and see if there's a citizen advocacy uh, organization in your community. But it's, it's helpful to think about the fact that if you don't, like you're saying, I can't think of anybody I know in my community that has a disability. Well, it's helpful to think about well, where the heck are they then? Mm -hmm. Right. And if they're not, if, if you're not seeing people in your community regularly who have disabilities, it's not because they're not in their community. It's that, that they don't live in your community. It's probably that they are being marginalized within your community, within society, um, and that they are stuck in a service world, which yeah, means I that for, for, you know, maybe not for teens, but as people get into their twenties, you know, um, that people are probably stuck in day programs and residential settings and those kinds of things. And what people need is citizens who are, you know, interested in, in extending that invitation, that, that willingness to be with people and get to know people. Um, but because they are marginalized, it may take some effort. Well, and we mentioned COVID too, right? This is a time where people are more isolated and where, again, we've said, and we've heard from our experts that our teens need, they need to have purpose. They need to feel like they have control in their lives. And again, this could be a place where they can say, you know, hey, finding a new friend, like I need connection. Other people need connection. And this might be just that opportunity to, to make a new friend and yeah. to be reaching out outside of their typical circle, which would be, be strengthening for both people in that situation. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Okay, and it's, so a, it's a great time for connection. You know, I think for all of us, it's a great time to be thinking about any and all of the ways in which we can connect with each other. Mm -hmm. So, Genia, where can listeners get in touch with you? I'll, like I said, I'll link directly to the podcast, but where's the best place for them to find you online? Mm -hmm. Yeah, everything links back to the website at goodthingsinlife.org. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today and for giving us so many insights on disability. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. And Mighty Parents, thank you for being here. No one should have to feel alone in their parenting journey. And we also want to make everybody's journey a little bit easier. So please share the podcast with another parent to help them with that. And thanks for joining us today for being part of the Mighty Parenting community. Remember, you're here, you're listening, you are a Mighty Parent. So you got this. And I will see you next week.